You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John chapter 12. John 12. We'll be in this chapter for a couple more weeks. Several years ago, the pastors of a certain church were surprised to discover that the children's curriculum their church was using for Easter Sunday had absolutely no mention of the resurrection of Jesus. And when the church contacted the curriculum publishers about this oversight, they discovered that it wasn't an oversight. They had intentionally eliminated any reference to the resurrection in their curriculum. And their explanation was that uh, because of the graphic nature of the crucifixion, they decided that it was best just to drop everything, the whole thing. Uh, Because they said, if we skip the crucifixion and go straight to the resurrection, kids will be confused. Now, there's at least one thing that I agree with them on, and that is that if you disconnect the resurrection of Christ from the crucifixion of Christ, it is confusing. A celebration of the resurrection cannot be uh, complete without embracing the cross. The problem is, is that we like resurrection. We don't like crucifixion. The crucifixion is graphic. The crucifixion is shocking. The crucifixion is disturbing to children and adults and can cause a a sense of revulsion and offense. This is nothing new. In John chapter 12, Jesus is on the path to crucifixion, and Jesus is faced with people who were disturbed and offended by this path. And yet, as we look at our text today, Jesus is going to turn everything on its head, and demonstrate why this scandalous cross, ironically, turns out to be the most amazing and beautiful thing for everyone who would not, in their offense, run from it, but would instead turn around and face it and embrace it. So let's embrace it now together. Please stand with me one more time. Stand with me out of honor and reverence for the readings of the words of our God and Savior, a God who was crucified, a God who is an ex-corpse, and He speaks here through this word to you this morning through His Apostle John in John chapter 12, and we're going to start at verse 20 and read on down through 36. God's Word says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit." Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 
The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Let's pray. Father, may you add your blessing to the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your holy and inspired word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If 21st century modern people and bad Christian publishing companies are repulsed by the cross, it was way more scandalous for first century Middle Eastern Hebrews who were longing for a conquering Messiah. As we turn back the clock to the early 30s A.D., we need to understand the hopes and dreams and expectations of the Jews at that time. Early 30s, I mean not 1930s, I mean A.D. 33. The Jewish kingdom had reached its apex uh, about a thousand years prior to this uh, uh, under King David and King Solomon. Israel was at the height of her power and glory, and the nation had incalculable wealth. Foreign kings were coming, paying homage to Israel. But by the time you get to Jesus' day, those glory days are long gone. And after centuries of being kicked around by various foreign powers, Israel finds itself under the yoke of the Roman Empire, more powerful than any other empire they've ever faced. And yet, there was a promise that was lodged in the heart of every Jew. And that was the promise of a coming new king, an heir to the throne with David's royal blood in his veins, who would come and not only restore the former glory of Israel, but would exceed it. It would be a global kingdom. Now, Jesus comes along, and he's unlike anybody who's ever come before him. He opens blind eyes. He, uh, he creates food out of nothing and feeds thousands. He, he goes to the tomb of a man four days dead, shouts out the man's name, and the man gets up and walks out. So it's not hard to imagine the overwhelming excitement of the people. Surely this must be Him. This must be Messiah. Surely this is the promised Son of David. Uh, and we saw this excitement uh, last week as we looked at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, as the, as the crowds declared Jesus to be the King of Israel. And they're, they're chanting, Hosanna, waving those palm branches. Hosanna, which means save now. And they believe that their deliverance is at hand, and it must have seemed to them that, that an overthrow of Roman tyranny was imminent. But Jesus' response to all of this is shocking. He responds by looking forward to the cross, looking ahead to the cross. And in our text today, we see four things in particular about the cross. We see the surprise of the cross. Look at verse 20. 
Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, Greeks here is just a general term referring to any Gentile, any non-Jew that was from the Greco-Roman world. Now, John is a brilliant writer. He had help from the Holy Spirit, but he's a brilliant writer. And it's not hard to detect the irony. He uses irony all over the place in this book. And it's not hard to detect the irony here as you move from verse 19 to verse 20. In verse 19, we see the exacerbation of the Jewish leaders as they see their, the crowds declaring him to be king. And the Pharisees are seeing uh, their own power, their own position and influence slipping away due to Jesus' rising popularity. And in response, they just throw up their hands in frustration and they say to one another in verse 19, you see that you're gaining nothing? Look, the, the world has gone after him. Now that's hyperbole. They, they're not thinking people from the ends of the earth. They're thinking about the Jewish masses in Jerusalem. But with great irony, what does John do next? In verse 20, John introduces us to some Greeks, some Gentiles. John is showing us that Jesus' attraction is beginning to extend beyond the Jews. Even the Gentiles, people from other parts of the world, are beginning to go after Jesus. So these Greeks asked to see Jesus and look at verse 22. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus' response is very, very interesting in verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He says, the hour has come. Now, the hour, that's a reoccurring theme in John's gospel. You see this over and over again. We see it as early as chapter 2 when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. We see it in chapter 7 when it says that no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And so after reading for half the book that Jesus' hour isn't here yet, it's a bit startling now to hear Jesus all of a sudden say, the hour's come. And he says it in connection with the arrival of these Gentiles. Why? Because it was never God's intention to save just Jews. Zechariah chapter 9, which, as we saw last week, prophesied not only that the king would come humbly mounted on a donkey, uh, but it also prophesied that this king shall speak peace to the nations, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of of the earth. And when Jesus mounts that donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, Jesus is declaring that he's not just some tribal king over a tiny group of people, quite the opposite. Uh, he's the king of all peoples. He's the king of Jews in Israel. He's the king of Koreans in Asia and over the tribal peoples in Africa. He is king over the different diverse people groups represented right here in Gwinnett County. His kingdom will be global. And John intends us to see the arrival of these Gentiles in verse 20 as the first fruits of the global harvest to come. Jesus sees it as a sign that the moment is at hand for him to begin gathering, to gather in all the peoples of the world to himself. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now that title, Son of Man, very important title, it reaches all the way back to Daniel chapter 7, which looks forward to a global messianic reign over all peoples. We actually saw this when we were uh, going through the, the book of, of Daniel 
last year. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man imagery in Daniel 7 was very popular among the Jewish people, and his coming in glory was something that they eagerly longed for and anticipated. And so when Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, many would have thought, all right, the hour's here, the Son of Man is to be glorified. It's time to draw our swords, it's time to sound the war trumpets, it's payback time, Daniel 7 is here, the kingdom's here, and we're going to lop off the heads of any Romans that stand in our way. Jesus is about to surprise everybody. Look at what Jesus says about how the Son of Man will be glorified. Verse 24, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is taking the prevailing notion of what glory means, and He is turning it on its head. When Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, He's saying the hour has come for me to die. If Jesus does what the crowds want Him to do, which is to keep on living, if Jesus holds on tightly to His life, if He clings to His life and seeks to protect it and keep it safe, He will not accomplish His purpose and bring forward something good. He'll be like an unplanted seed. Good for Himself, maybe but good for no one else. And that's surprising to the people. How can you be a king if you die, Jesus? How can you defeat our enemies if your life is taken? How can a kingdom be built on the blood of its king? This is so outside the scope and expectations of the people. Jesus dying wasn't even on the radar of his disciples. Here's an example. Uh, in Mark chapter 10, James and John, same John who writes the Gospel of John, James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, they come up to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, and what do they ask of Him? They say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Do you see what they're asking? They see Jesus as on His way to Jerusalem. And they're thinking, this is it. Jesus is taking over. It's time for us to put in our request for where we want to be when the new regime comes to power and they ask to sit at Jesus' hand, right hand and left hand. I mean, they're just going for broke. They're just asking. They're, they're not modest about this request, are they? The sheer audacity of that request. They are essentially, friends, they're essentially asking if they can be Jesus' second and third command and Jesus' cosmic empire. That's crazy! The Bible says when the other disciples heard about it, they were indignant. I'll bet you they were. Because they wanted to be on top. We're told twice in Luke's gospel that they're all arguing amongst themselves over who's the greatest, jockeying for position in the coming kingdom. 
Nobody who is thinking the way that these disciples are thinking, uh, they're, not, they're not thinking about Jesus dying. They're thinking, Daniel, son of man, glory, not crucified Messiah. And so Jesus going down a road towards the cross is surprising. But more than that, it's offensive. It's offensive. Jesus describes specifically what a grain of wheat falling into the ground looks like for him in verse 32. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, just reading that verse in isolation, lifted up sounds pretty good and positive, doesn't it? Jesus, high and lifted up. We like how that sounds. But here's another instance of double meaning in John's gospel. Indeed, Jesus will be high and lifted up. But look at verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is going to be lifted up, literally, physically. He's going to be lifted up off the earth on a cross. The cross was for the worst of criminals. The cross was for treasonous rebels and insurrectionists. The Romans would literally lift them up and put them on sticks and hang them there to die. And Jesus is saying, this is the hour of my glorification. And this is the means by which my glory will be put on display. And this is the means by which I will draw all people to myself, all kinds of people from all races, from all tribes and tongues and nations, there will be a global harvest of souls brought into the kingdom through the lifting up of Jesus on a cross. And the people don't like it. The cross is revolting. The cross is offensive. The cross was a sign to the Jews that you were cursed and abandoned and rejected by God. Their version of the Son of Man does not include cross. And you can see their pushback in verse 34, so the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They are rejecting this. They are saying, No way! The King lives forever. He doesn't die. The King destroys the criminals. He's not treated like one. The King is received by God, not rejected by God. So what's up with this cross business, Jesus? There's no cross in Daniel 7. Who is this Son of Man? It's not the Son of Man we know. It's not the Son of Man we want. Now again, even Jesus' disciples were offended by this. When Jesus talked about His suffering and death, Peter, the leader of the disciples, said, No way, Jesus, not happening to you. And do you remember what Jesus called Peter in that moment? He said, get behind me, Satan. He called him Satan. That seems to be escalating things a little bit, don't you think? Not really. Because Jesus sees the notion that he not go to the cross as an utterly satanic idea. He saw it as Satan speaking through Peter, trying to dissuade him from the cross. Now, from the very beginning, that was Satan's goal. In fact, that was one of the very first temptations that he attacked Jesus with at the onset of Jesus' ministry. 
Scripture tells us that, G- that Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory and splendor, and, and he says, I will give all of this to you, and all you have to do is worship me. And we think, why is that a temptation for Jesus? His inheritance is the kingdoms of the world already. The, the, re- the reason, friends, why it's a temptation is because if Jesus gets the kingdom through obedience to the Father, he's got to go to the cross first. And Satan is saying, why do that? Take it now. Friends, that's exactly what these disciples are saying to Jesus. It's exactly what those Palm Sunday crowds are saying to Jesus, and they don't know what they're asking. If Jesus turns away from the cross and seizes the crown and takes up his glory like James and John wanted him to, if he rides into Jerusalem not on a donkey, but on a war horse with the sword and power and in glory meeting out justice to God's enemies like everybody wanted on Palm Sunday. If he does that, there's no hope for anybody. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. We all deserve wrath. We all are by nature enemies of God and rebels against the king. And the devil knows that. And he stirs up even Jesus' closest friends to be offended by the cross. And the devil stirs up the world today to be offended by the cross. Because without the cross, without the cross, his accusations against the world, against you, will stand forever. The Bible describes the devil as an accuser like a relentless prosecuting attorney holding up your sin and my sin before God constantly. Look at what he did. Look at what she did. They're guilty, God, and you've got to put them to death. You've got to sentence them to hell, because if you don't, you won't be just, God. And that's exactly right. To save sinners without punishing sin is injustice. So God's got two choices to save no one, or to pay the price for sin himself. And this, friends, gets to the heart of the reason why Jesus came in the first place. And after hearing James and John's request for places of glory at the right hand and left hand of Jesus in the coming kingdom, minus the cross, Jesus turns to them and says, you don't get it. The Son of Man, even the Son of Man, Even the Daniel 7 Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we see the surprise of the cross. We see the offense of the cross. We also see the glory of the cross. Jesus comes to give his life as a ransom. You pay ransoms for people held in captivity. And humanity is held captive by their own sin, by the accusations of the devil, and by the fear of death and judgment. When you pay a ransom, you make the sacrifice so the captive one goes free. It's amazing that in our passage today, a passage that talks so much about death, it also talks about glory. Verse 23, Jesus says that this is it. This is the hour of my glory paradoxical, isn't it? The cross is horrifying. 
The cross is shocking and scandalous. The cross is disturbing and even repulsive. And what's more, Jesus agrees with you. Look at what he says in verse 27. He says, now my soul is troubled. That word in the Greek, troubled, points to a deep anguish in his soul, a tumult, a deep disturbance. Jesus is shaken to the core of his very being as he contemplates the cross. Much like he would a few nights later in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, my soul is troubled even to the point of death. And he falls to the ground on his face before God, his soul in anguish, and so much anguish that he is sweating drops of blood as he prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, why the anguish? Why the internal gut-wrenching torment? Because the cross means the sin of the world being put on Him. Him, the perfectly holy and innocent one. The cross means experiencing the full wrath of God for those sins, which is hell. And Scripture tells us that as He hung on that cross... He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? R.C. Sproul once described that cry from Jesus as the most agonizing protest ever uttered on this planet. It bursts forth in a moment of unparalleled pain. It is the scream of the damned. And Jesus knew that that moment was at hand. His hour was here. Folks, if you are disturbed and shaken by the cross, know that Jesus was too, but way more than you. And you you can imagine that Satan and all of his demons were on the edge of their seat in the garden, just hoping that that at the 11th hour, Jesus would turn away in disobedience to his Father. And yet Jesus turns around and he embraces the cross. He said in that garden, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And look at what he says here in John 12 after contemplating the the horror of the cross. He says something very similar in verse 27. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Oh, how Jesus loved the glory of God. He was consumed with the glory of God. He says elsewhere, my food and drink are to do the will of my Father. And he knows that his desire for the glory of God will take him right to the place of the skull, right to Calvary, right to crucifixion. And Jesus says, yes, glorify your name. In that moment, Jesus dies to himself to live for the glory of his Father in heaven. And the Father agrees. Verse 28, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The prayer of Jesus will be answered on Golgotha in just a few days when Jesus will pay for the ransom of sinful man. That will be the moment of the glorification of God. Now, the prophet Isaiah vividly predicts the paying of the ransom, and he writes this in Isaiah 52. Behold, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Recognize that phrase? Lifted up. He shall be high and lifted up 
and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What's Isaiah talking about? He's talking about Good Friday. Jesus was marred and disfigured. He was beaten to a bloody pulp. Jesus' flesh was shredded as he was whipped with a cat of nine tails. A thorny crown was slammed down on his head, his body nailed to two slabs of wood. In the next chapter, Isaiah describes him as one despised and rejected by men. But not only that, stricken and smitten by God Himself, which leads to the glorious words of Isaiah in 53, 5. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. And friends, this is how Jesus wins the nations to himself. His global conquest begins not with a sword, but with the cross. At the cross, it's Jesus who takes the sword of God's wrath and judgment for our sins on our behalf. Jesus Himself takes God's curse on Himself as our substitute. Jesus, as our representative, suffers abandonment by God because we deserved not kingdom, but exile. And the full wrath of God that would have incinerated James and John and Jerusalem and you and me was absorbed by Jesus. Jesus had to do it this way because there would be no heavenly kingdom of Christ if we're all in hell. Our sin was keeping us out of the kingdom. The kingdom that those first century Jews were so longing for. They, they, they were barred from it. They didn't realize it. But now all who receive His payment for sin has eternal life and free entrance into that kingdom. You can't get to Daniel 7 until you go through Isaiah 52 and 53. The glory of Daniel 7 is preceded by the glory of Isaiah 52 and 53. And yes, there is a glory in that old rugged cross, because in the cross, the justice of God and the love of God are put on beautiful, brilliant, glorious display. His justice towards sin and His love for you, it's all there at the cross. And this brings us full circle back to John 12, where we also see the power of the cross. Often we talk about what the cross means to us, and sometimes we talk about what it means to Jesus, but the cross means something to the devil also. Look at what Jesus says in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This hour of Jesus' glorification at His cross means the casting out or the overthrow of Satan because the cross renders impotent the most effective weapon the devil has against you, which is his accusations. So if you receive Jesus as your sin-bearing substitute, your debt to God is now canceled, the devil is defanged, Satan cannot bring any legal charges against you because your debt has been paid in full. And so Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 2. God, having 
forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As Jesus is hanging there exalted, high and lifted up, bloodied and bruised and battered and disfigured and marred, He is, at the same time, crushing Satan. And the moment where it seems like Jesus has lost, He is demolishing the devil. That's why you see the celebratory language in Revelation 12, where it talks about how the dragon, Satan, has been cast down. And it says the accuser of the brethren, the accuser, has been thrown down, and we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. It's because of this wonderfully scandalous cross that we can rest in the promise of Romans 8.1 that says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you need to hear that word this morning as you have this propensity to wallow in the mire of guilt and condemnation over all of your many sins and over all of your many failures. Brother and sister, the only thing that will silence and cast out the accuser is the cross. So go there, look there, and be free. And how can you know? How can you know that Jesus' payment was sufficient? The proof is the empty tomb. Here's where the crucifixion and the resurrection come together. In His resurrection, Jesus was vindicated as an innocent man and the perfect payment that satisfied the wrath of God towards our sin. Vindicated all of that. Death could not hold him, and therefore Jesus rose from the dead in power and in glory. What's more, his resurrection means that everyone in Christ who follows Jesus into the valley of the shadow of death will experience that same victory over death. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And He goes on to write, The dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's the hope of the believer. That was the hope I was able to share with Edwin a few days ago, just hours after the passing of his dear wife, Miss Mary, whom so many of us here know and love. We grieve for losing Mary, but we do not grieve as ones who have no hope. You know why? Because Jesus didn't cling to his life. Because Jesus chose to be lifted up on that cross. Because Jesus like a grain of wheat, fell to the ground and died and produced much fruit. And Mary is a part of that fruit. And we will see Mary again soon in a glorified and healed and powerful body. Indeed, Jesus' sacrifice produces an abundance of life and millions upon millions upon millions of people of every tribe and tongue and nation who were under the dominion of death. But now they live because Jesus... That grain of wheat fell to the ground and died. 
And because of Jesus' victory in death and resurrection, the Apostle John, that same John who wanted Jesus to reject the cross, that same John later on sees a glorious vision that is only made possible because of the cross, the cross that he hated so much. And he writes in Revelation 7, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, that publisher of that Sunday school curriculum, they can do whatever they want. But as long as this preacher has breath, you will never hear me stop talking about the cross. Because while the cross is indeed disturbing and horrifying and scandalous because of what it represents, it is also paradoxically stunning in its beauty because of what it represents. Namely, the very glory of God. The cross is the key that unlocks salvation. The cross is the sign of God's holy hatred towards sin. The cross is the proof of God's love for sinners. The cross is the message of mercy for the rebels and outlaws. The cross is an emblem of hope to all who are in the bondage of Satan. The cross is folly to those who are perishing. The cross is the power of God for those who are being saved. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, in closing, what does this mean for all of you right now, today? Well, Jesus, thankfully, gives us application right here in the text. When Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit, He first and foremost is talking about Himself. But He doesn't stop there. He goes on to say in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Don Carson explains that to love one's life in the way that Jesus means it is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty and a brazen elevation of self and an idolatrous focus on self, which is the heart of all sin. Such a person loses his life. In other words, he causes his own spiritual destruction. In contrast, to hate your life means to turn away from your self-centered and self-focused world, to turn away from your little kingdom that you're trying to build, and to regard Jesus and His priorities and His desires and His kingdom as supreme. Charles Spurgeon rightly wrote that Jesus will not be your Savior if you refuse Him as your sovereign. The reason why in first century Jerusalem, the, crowd, the, the, the cries of Hosanna gave way to the shouts of crucify Him was because the people wanted the benefits of Jesus as Savior, but they wanted to be Lord. They loved their agenda, their plans, their hopes, their desires more than Jesus, and they refused to let those things go. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, the first step to dying to self is simply surrendering your life to Jesus. Jesus. 
And you do that by faith. You receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. That's what it means to hate your life. To take yourself out of the center and put Jesus in the center. You confess your sins, you turn away from your sins, and you trust in His work on the cross as the all-sufficient payment for your sins. If you're already a believer, you know that hating your life, dying to self, is not a one-time thing. It's not that you would like, you know, initially come to Christ to get saved, and then, and then you're like, whew, man, that, glad that dying part is over. I, I'm, all, I'm all done with that now, so I can just move on. No. Jesus says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. That's not a one-time thing. That's a lifetime thing. And again, Don Carson is helpful when he writes that the one who hates his life denies himself. Or to use another of Jesus' metaphors, the person who takes up his cross daily chooses not to pander to self-interest, but at the deepest level of his being declines to make himself the focus of his interest and perception, thereby dying. Again, it's about putting Jesus at the center. It's about crucifying your desire to be Lord and looking to Jesus as Lord. And there is no one here in this room that is fully there yet, right? Everyone here has things that they still need to die to. We're all learning how to die to ourselves so that we might live to God. Some of us need to die to bitterness. Some of us need to die to anger. Some of us are so sensitive and so touchy, we just go off on every little thing. Some of us need to die to an unforgiving spirit, uh, to a critical attitude that is upset because the church or another Christian isn't meeting your expectations. Dying to self for you might look like setting your foolish pride aside and reconciling with somebody in this room immediately after we're done here. For others of you, dying to self means to stop focusing on yourself all the time and, and thinking about instead what it looks like to serve and love and encourage others instead of thinking about how others need to serve you. Still others may need to die to a sense of self-protection that's keeping you from sharing the gospel with the lost, or, or that's preventing you from a greater level of service in the church. Others of you may need to die to an unhealthy love of possessions or an unhealthy sense of security and money, and you need to start giving more of it away. Still others may have besetting sins that no one else knows about, and it's time to confess those things and get another brother or sister involved in your life to help you to turn away from those things. Dying to self means increasingly having the attitude that John the Baptist had when he said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And as you increasingly learn to die in that way, guess what? Here, here's the paradox. You will find increasing abundance of fruit in your own life. Because eternal life is not just about heaven. It's about an unsurpassed quality of life right now that not only benefits you, but spills over and blesses all those around you, producing much fruit, like a grain of wheat that dies. That's true living. That's what you're on this planet for. 
course, you cannot live a life of cross-bearing, of daily dying in your, in your own strength. You can't do it in your own strength. You need God's strength through prayer, through His Word, through the encouragement of your brothers and sisters here in this church, and to fixing your gaze on Christ Himself, seeing and savoring the One who bore a more difficult, more painful, weightier cross than either you or I will ever bear. As the author of Hebrews says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God.